If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. In today's episode, we'll be talking to the historian and broadcaster Afwa Hirsch, whose new BBC4 series, African Renaissance, When Art Meets Power, explores how Africa's artists are responding to the continent's past. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, spoke to her recently to find out more. This is a series about African art, and we decided to take a really broad sweep approach to looking at art from three African countries that have so much to offer in terms of giving an insight into the incredibly rich history of those countries their ancient culture, as well as the contemporary art scene, and all of the innovation and creativity and tradition that that all of that history has to offer. And I think it's really important to me as well to tell stories from the African continent that maybe are a little less familiar to people in Britain, because I think that there's been a lot of buzz, for example, around Nigerian art at the moment. Huge numbers of Nigerian artists um, raising incredible amounts, selling their art at auction houses around the world and really exciting contemporary scene that we keep reading about and hearing about. And that's something I'm really excited about as well. But I also feel that we sometimes 
follow slightly colonial patterns of always looking at the countries that are most well known as former British colonies or members of the Commonwealth. So I thought it would be really interesting to look at countries that are a little bit less well known in Britain. We went to Senegal, um, which is a former Francophone French colony, which has a fascinating pre-colonial history as well as a really interesting story of resistance against empire and has produced some incredible art as a result of that journey. And it's also a country I happen to have lived in. So I have a really personal attachment to and interest in telling the story of Senegal art to British people who I know from personal experience when I came back from living there, didn't know anything about Senegal, didn't even necessarily know where it was. We also went to Ethiopia, which is very unique on the African continent for having a particularly ancient Christian tradition um, and a story of Solomonic kings from the Bible and just a really remarkable weight of ancient history, but also a very vibrant contemporary art scene. And then the third country we chose is one that probably is more familiar to British people is Kenya. And I think that was really interesting because although many people know about Kenya, people have probably visited Kenya, they may not be so familiar with its art scene. You know, I think people think of Kenya, they think of history, they think of railways, they think of struggles against colonialism and the Mau Mau, they think of safari and the wildlife and the landscape, but maybe haven't engaged fully with the cultural history of Kenya and the art that modern Kenyans are producing. So each country had a story to tell that we felt was a little bit different to what people are used to hearing. And that has so much to offer the world just because of the sheer brilliance of the art it's producing now. I mean, is it fair to say, or is it too reductive to say that all three of these nations, their culture and their art is to some extent defined by their struggles for liberation? I think that you can't ignore the history of empire, colonialism and the struggle for liberation. And it looks very different in all of those three countries. Um, Senegal had a very unique struggle against colonialism because of its tradition of Sufi Islam and these figures, these prophets who really led the resistance and have become embedded not just in the religious culture, but also the literary and artistic culture as a result. Kenya had a violent struggle against colonialism and, and a, a resistance movement that's probably better known. Um, and Ethiopia was never formally colonized. It stands out really as the only country on the African continent that never had an experience of either settlers or European colonialism, but also had its struggles against invasion by Italy and Mussolini and attempts to colonize it. So they're very different um, liberation stories, but I think it is also important not to reduce the story of African countries, either to their having been colonized or their resistance against empire. And I think in Europe, we tend to locate ourselves at the center of these stories of Africa. Even when we're acknowledging African resistance, it's still about Britain or France or and how, how, how that affected um, the way that Africans think about themselves. And I think that's an important story, but it's also not the only story. You know, African culture existed before Europeans came to Africa and it continues to thrive now reclaiming much of the space that Europeans took away. So I think I think it is really crucial to engage with that history, but it's also crucial not to almost repeat it and be colonial in the way we think about how those stories are told now. Mm. And as you say about Ethiopia, that nation has a proud, significant culture that's equal to any uh, in the West. What was your experience like of visiting that nation? That was a really uh, powerful experience for me. I'd never been to Ethiopia before and... I have to say that one thing that really struck me in Ethiopia was the irony of Europeans feeling that they need to civilize 
and Christianized Africans um, going to a country that was Christian centuries before England or any uh, part of the British Isles. Uh, it's a, it is one of the ancient um, monotheistic capitals if you go to Axum alongside Jerusalem and Rome. It was really profound to go to Axum and see the shrine where the Ark of the Covenant, the sacred tablets on which the Ten Commandments received directly from God by Moses were inscribed, are believed to be housed in northern Ethiopia. And it's the site of pilgrimage that people visit and feel the weight of this history and this religious significance. And there is a very unique culture that surrounds it in Ethiopia. So to see these ancient monuments, to be part of that biblical story and see that all in the context of an African country that has really rejected a lot of globalized imperial norms. For example, Ethiopia has its own time. It doesn't subscribe to international time zones. It has its own calendar. Um, I think it was 2011 in Ethiopia when I was there last year. So it, it was a really fascinating insight into what happens when an African country isn't colonized and does reject the, the, the globalizing influence of European invasion. And it's just a completely unique experience. And then to be able to look at that through the lens of art and creative people um, was really special. And I think that a lot of that magic is present in the film that we made. And I'm really excited to see what people will learn from it and how it will change the way they look at African countries like Ethiopia. Something I'm fascinated by is the fact that because Europeans reached these parts of, of Africa and found out that there was this culture, this civilization that existed long before theirs did, and they made up this lie, in a sense, which has been so pervasive, why do you think it has had such a, like a hold on the popular imagination? Well, I think that imperialism was in some ways very sophisticated, and there was a recognition by Europeans that you can't rule people by force alone you have to make them believe in their own inferiority. And you also have to persuade British people of their superiority to justify what is otherwise murder, theft. You can't go to a country and take people's land and destroy their heritage unless you can convince people that there is some kind of moral imperative in doing so. And the ideology that underpinned that was really a very powerful ideology. It persuaded generations of people that this was the right thing to do. And it also persuaded people who were colonized, that it was their moral destiny to be ruled over because they were primitive or savage. And it's, I think, very clear to see now how racist and toxic and destructive those ideas were. But at the same time, people like me were in a way raised in their shadow. You know, my mother was born in a British colony, the Gold Coast, which is now Ghana. And she went to school being told that Britain was superior, that her own history was one of savagery. And unpicking that brainwashing takes generations. It goes deep into the psyche. And I think that Africans have rejected that ideology for decades now. The independence movements that saw the end of the empire were really a wholesale rejection of those ideas. But the psychological consequences of them take longer to unpick. And that's, again, why I love talking to artists because artists have this unique way of really getting to the roots of these psychological forces, this ideology and, and disrupting it through their creativity. And I think that's really exciting to see. And I think it helps all of us 
question ourselves, ask ourselves, well, what parts of that ideology have still shaped our thinking and how can we disrupt it and how can we engage with the people who are challenging us to see things in a way that doesn't have the stain of that past and that racist thinking that led to Africa being colonised in the first place? This is obviously too broad a question, but how do these artists, how do the young people, particularly in these countries, see their own histories? When you spoke to them, what sense of that did you get? There was a real defiance among the artists I spoke to. And actually, in a way, I think that they're no longer interested in positioning themselves and all their work as a response to colonialism. In a way, that's that was maybe the generation that had to fight colonialism head on. But now Africans, in a way, I think, are often um, rejecting the whole narrative that they have to prove themselves or that they even care really what the Western media says about them. In a way, they're talking to each other. They're reaching out to other parts of the world, South America, China, um, and they are inventing new things and creating new conversations. And that was really refreshing and, and actually humbling to realize that, you know, this isn't, um, they don't care whether we persuade British audiences that they're making good art. They're making good art. And, and if we are um, fortunate enough to experience it, we will learn a lot from them. So I found that really fresh and I think reflective of actually at the younger generation in many ways around the world. I think that there is this spirit of really not seeking approval or being apologetic anymore, but just forging into a new way of doing things and a new way of expressing ourselves. And somewhere like Senegal, for instance, I mean, how much does its French um, influences still manifest themselves today? It's impossible to ignore the French influence in Senegal. I mean, there are lots of French people in Senegal. There are a lot more French settlers in Senegal than there were in equivalent British West African colonies. And there was also an idea of becoming French that the British didn't export to their former parts of the empire either. I don't think Britain ever tried to tell Nigerians or Ghanaians that they were really British in the same way that France had an idea of its members of the Franc Afrique, as they call it, French-speaking Africa, being somehow French. So I think that that has penetrated um, the identity of people in countries like Senegal in a different way. But at the same time, they have such a rebellious religious history. The form of Islam that's practiced in Senegal has always been very much part of a resistance movement against um, Eurocentric ideas and against imperialism. So those are two quite powerful forces in a way pulling in different directions. And I think that's one of the reasons there's this electric spark in Senegal as Senegalese people wrestle with that tension themselves and express it through their art. And when I say art as well, we took a really broad approach. We looked at dance, we looked at music, we looked at jewellery making and craft as well as painting and sculpture. There are so many different ways that you find that expression. And again, I think that it's a huge challenge to take the entire history of a country as fascinating as Senegal and then look at all its different art forms and to do that in one program. But we worked very hard to try and pack as much of that in as thoughtful a way as possible into each of these episodes. And I think that that will really come through. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Europe has a lot to learn if it opens its eyes. And that, I think, is a message that comes through. This is a series about art and you can watch it and just see beautiful art. But if you pay attention, you will also start to understand where this continent is heading and why everyone in the world should take it seriously. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Were there any artists or, I suppose, um, movements of art that you found particularly striking? I don't think I saw anything in any of these countries that wasn't striking. Um, in Senegal, I was really interested in the tradition of goldsmiths that comes from a really ancient pre-colonial um, time in, in that part of West Africa. Um, we saw some really beautiful filigree gold being made. It was also incredible to go to the Ecole des Sables, which is a dance school in the desert, essentially, which takes Africans from all over the continent and teaches them a really unique form of contemporary dance that draws on many different African traditions. And it's a school that has a history as old as mo the modern nation of Senegal itself and was part of a, a a story in Senegal that saw independence from colonialism as completely part of a new art and culture revolution. And Senegal's really unusual because its first independence government invested heavily in the arts and saw that as part of building a new post-colonial Senegalese identity. So we all benefit from that today because it means that Senegalese institutions have been there creating these art forms for decades now. And they called this out, I mean, just to see it, it's the most beautiful place. Imagine a huge dance studio in this really quite arid, um, sandy place and an incredible landscape and these open, open walls. And then these dancers just working away at these mesmerizing routines and talking about how that speaks to their 
African spirit. You know, they talk about drawing on the traditions of ancestors and ancient religious beliefs and unifying that in their movement and their connection to the earth and the elements and the stories that they tell. So it was a really profound experience to see that. Um, on the complete different end of the spectrum in Kenya, we went to see Michael Soy, who's a really interesting contemporary artist who uses a lot of satire and caricature in his art. Um, and he tells stories about modern Kenya's relationship with China, for example. There's a lot of controversy about the role of China in funding infrastructure development, in providing loans to African governments. And he really um, critiques that in quite an unusual way through his art, which I really encourage you to look at. And you'll see lots of it in the film we made in um, Kenya. And that's really quite a cerebral story of how painting can be a form of political critique. Um, so there's, there's a whole range. And in Ethiopia, one of the most powerful experiences for me was to go to the Museum of the Red Terror, which is a museum to the communist rule in Ethiopia, and just see how the trauma of that time has been converted into art that just speaks on a really human level to the suffering, but also just the resilience of Ethiopians. And I think that people know Ethiopia for the wrong things, for uh, tyrannical government and obviously for famine, which was a kind of generation-defining view of Ethiopia. But when you speak to Ethiopian artists, they tell those same stories, because these are things that happen to Ethiopia, but they tell them in a very different way, in a way that I think humanizes Ethiopians and gives them agency, whereas I think the Western narrative about Ethiopian suffering was really to infantilize Ethiopians and make them victims. Um, Ethiopians tell that story very differently, and it's really insightful to witness their art. So those are just three examples. I mean, there are too many to go into, but I learned so much from everything I saw. And I think that it's a real honor to be able to communicate it to audiences who maybe haven't seen these things as well. That idea of um, giving African people back the narrative is particularly interesting when you come to Kenya, which is obviously somewhere that, as you say in the programme, the British kind of manufactured this whole new narrative for. How did they do that? And what's the legacy of that today, I suppose? I think that um, the narrative that the British created of Kenya was one of empty space, to simplify it, because British people went to Kenya and they saw fertile land and they saw compelling wildlife, and they wanted it. They wanted it. Um, it was a source of enrichment. It was a source of exotic holidays. It was a way of dominating and acquiring new resources for themselves. And I think justifying that required an idea that there was nothing there already. There was nothing there. It was this blank canvas. It was this primordial landscape of big skies and savannas and red suns. And I'm sure if you're listening to this, you can picture this idea of Kenya. You know, the savanna with the giraffe majestically running across it and the huge red sky setting and the empty plains. And what that narrative erases is people, the people of Kenya who had been there for hundreds of years before any European ever saw that land. And, and, and it's really um, frustrating how much that narrative has persisted, that people still like to romanticize the idea of Kenya as a place of open space. It's almost like a blank canvas for Europeans to play on. And I, obviously it's not true, but it's also something that Kenyans have kind of been playing with in a way with their art. And um, 
it's not a light story. And I think the, the the trauma of colonialism and the struggle that was required to overturn it is something that is still playing out in many ways in, in modern Kenya. But I think it would be healthy for British people in particular to engage more with the truth of what happened in Kenya and how the dispossession that that involved has left a legacy that's very difficult to overturn. So if you look at the art that's being created in Kenya now, um, it's anything but open space. You know, Kenya is a place that has a really vibrant urban culture. If you go to Nairobi, I mean, we looked at matatus, which are a form of urban transport. They're kind of like London's red buses or New York's yellow taxis. Um, And they've become such an iconic part of the modern Kenyan experience that this artist we met, Dennis Muraguri, is turning them into an art form. And it's, um, it's the opposite of that idea of empty space. It's a kind of innovative, bustling, because a lot of people don't know that Nairobi is also a kind of tech capital on the African continent. So there's this whole generation of innovators um, in Nairobi and everyone's just hustling and jostling and moving around at lightning speed. And these matatus are the colourful means by which they get there. They each have their own sound system. They compete passengers. Um, But Dennis has taken that and turned it into art and it's really beautiful to see. And just one of so many ways that modern artists are really mocking and dismantling that idea that Kenya is this kind of rural primordial place of empty space. Mm. Are there any resistance figures, either political or religious or other areas in any of the three nations that you cover that you think needs more attention in the West? I think all of the resistance figures need more attention. I mean, if you talk about Kenya, I went to a school, which is a former Mau Mau detention centre, and the crimes that were committed there, uh, I met a survivor of, of, of detention in that concentration camp. And he, he is an old man who really had such dignity in the way he told the story of what he endured in that place at the hands of the British. And I think in Britain, there's still this idea that the Mau Mau were these kind of terrorists who were trying to um, destroy the successful functioning economy of this great British colony, whereas really they were fighting for what every human wants, which is the right to self-determination and the right to control their own story and be respected and treated as equal and have access to their own land. It's not a lot to ask for, uh, but they had to fight for that in Kenya. And I think that that's still not recognised. In Senegal, seeing the Baifal, who are the um, kind of religious followers of um, the prophets who led Senegal to independence and really fought colonial, uh, the colonial rule is a really interesting story about Islam, about African identity um, that I think is really not well known outside Senegal and certainly not in Britain. Um, and that was also a very, um, it, was, it was a very experiential art form to see. It involves lots of singing and dancing and graffiti. And if you go to Senegal, these stories, especially the story of Sheikh Amadou Bamba, who was the kind of main figure who led this religious resistance movement. He's everywhere on every wall, on you know, in every city, there are images of him and people devote, devote their lives to following him and keeping his name alive. So I think that's something that um, is really enriching to understand and, and, and we've lost out by not really engaging with that story in Britain in the past. Finally, then, how would you like the audience of this series to re-understand the history and the culture of these three nations, and I suppose Africa more generally? 
I think it's really important as a prerequisite to shake off, to shed the ideas that many people have of Africa, because even today, it's still seen as the dark continent, you know, the place that humanity forgot, the place that offered nothing to the world, the place that was passed over by civilization, uh, the place that was a primitive forest of people living in mud huts and um, kind of untouched by modernism and invention. And every single thing I just said is the opposite of the truth about the African continent. You know, it's millennia of civilization. Many of the ideas that we treasure in Europe came from Africa. And there is an incredible continuity of tradition, of culture, of history, of literature, of art in every single country on the African continent. And you can't appreciate that no matter how much you look for it, unless you begin to undo some of the conditioning that I think many of us, and I include myself, having grown up in Britain, I grew up with this idea. The only time I saw Africa on the news or in the media was when something terrible had happened, a famine or a war. Um, the first time I went to Ghana, the country of my mother's heritage as a child, my school friends asked me if I would have to be barefoot the whole time and were absolutely shocked when I said I would call because they didn't imagine there would be phones there. You know, this is in the 1990s. And I know that this still happens. So I think it's important to recognize the strength of prejudice and misconception that surrounds the African continent today. It's pervasive and it is absolutely rooted in a racist past that we haven't confronted in Britain. So I think that's the first thing to say. And then I think on the positive, if you're able to start to shed and challenge those preconceptions, you will find a continent that is forging ahead. And it's not that it's um, asking Europeans to take it seriously. It's just being serious. It's just solving problems, reinventing itself. It has the youngest population in the world. It is a hub of innovation, entrepreneurialism, incredible cultural creativity. So I, I would say ignore that at your peril, you know, and, and in a way Africa doesn't need Europe, but um, Europe has a lot to learn if it opens its eyes. And that I think is a message that comes through. This is a series about art and you can watch it and just see beautiful art. But if you pay attention, you will also start to understand where this continent is heading and why everyone in the world should take it seriously. That was Afwa Hirsch. Her series, African Renaissance, When Art Meets Power, is airing on BBC4 on Mondays and past episodes are available on BBC iPlayer. You can read a version of this interview in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes features on Edward the Confessor, the end of the Second World War, medieval manuscripts, and a whole lot more. Well, that's all for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Friday, when we'll be speaking to John Dickey about the Freemasons. <laughs>